Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Dr. Kelsey Griesheim, Assistant Professor of Soil Fertility at North Dakota State University. She completed her PhD at the University of Illinois, where she worked under Dr. Richard Mulvaney, conducting field evaluations and measuring fertilizer uptake efficiency of various application types. Monty and Dr. Griesheim take a deep dive into her studies of nitrogen. She gives us a lot to think about, like when we apply nitrogen, we're fertilizing our crops but we're also fertilizing the microorganisms. And that, Dr. Kreesheim points out, is why nitrogen management is so difficult because we have to take into account the fact that the nitrogen is not just being used by the plants, it's also being used by the microorganisms in the soil. And it turns out they're often a lot better at scavenging nitrogen than the crop is. We'll cover that and so much more, so let's get started. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, today we are joined with Dr. Kelsey Kreesheim for the uh, North Dakota State University, and uh, she's coming to us live from Fargo, North Dakota. Welcome, Kelsey. Hi, good morning. We're, um, you know, you and uh, Dr. Richard Mulvaney at the University of Illinois uh, did some really interesting work that piqued my my interest, and that's why we're visiting today. But before we, we dive into all things radioactive and nitrogen-based. Uh, tell us a little bit of your story, Kelsey, um, how you got started in, in uh, academia and, and what drives your interest today? Yeah, um, I, I grew up in Mount Pulaski, Illinois, which was a small town close to, to Springfield um, and started off detasseling as all good crop scientists start, right? I did that for, I think, three summers and um, basically uh, went on to look at crop sciences for a degree at the University of Illinois. I actually started in biotech. I was doing that for a couple of years. And then I took one soils course and I was like, nope, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is my, this is my place. These are my people. Um, quickly shifted. Um, and, and that shift actually happened whenever I took intro to soils with uh, Dr. Mulvaney. And so that was my first introduction to soils was with him. I loved the course, loved it. And I basically went up to him after class and was like, hey, can I have a job in your lab? He said, yes. And then the rest is history. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is awesome. So uh, we took you from the cool field of biotech to, mm. the, to be a dirt nerd like me. Yes. Awesome. That's great. So for those of you that haven't had the experience of detasseling corn, um, which I, I didn't have that job as a kid, but I was on a farm and I had several of my um, town friends that did detasseling, you know, it was good money, right? But uh, uh, you all need to know about that experience, right? Wearing garbage bags and uh, dew soaked corn early, early in the morning. Uh, plucking mail row tassels that the that the machine missed. How much is that just the the ultimate fun or is that something that once you've done that you can do anything? Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's like, you know, you have to earn your way, right? And tasseling is how you do it. But I feel like with that job, it's who you work with. We had a really fun group 
And so it was fun, but. Well, that's awesome. So, I mean, that prepped you for not being afraid to do uh, research in the field or related to soil then, uh, because yes. a lot of the work that you do and have done is, is hard work, right? And it's hard, it's dirty work and it's hot, it's muddy, it's dusty, it's, it's everything. So talk to us about some of the research projects you've been involved in uh, before we, we dive deep into the, the nitrogen study, but uh, share with us a kind of your progression of once you came to Dr. Mulvaney's lab and, and we're helping there, what, how that evolved. Yeah. So just like with the task lane, when you start working in a lab, you kind of work on the groundwork, right? So when I first started, I was grinding soil samples. I was weighing things, doing all that kind of fun stuff before um, I kind of built a working relationship with Mulvaney and he's like, okay, you're ready for research. And so that's when I jumped into to doing research. Um, I have kind of two different types of projects that I do. Um, one of them is the one that you're interested in, the field study. Um, the other half of it is more methodology work. So um, there's lots of different forms of nitrogen in the soil. And we're interested in all of those because we want to understand how nitrogen cycles in the soil. And um, we have to be able to measure those, those fractions of nitrogen. And so um, some of the work that I've done has revolved around measuring um, different things in the soil. Typically, I don't talk about that research because honestly, unless you like chemistry and are interested in talking about those pools, it's very boring to some people and I can appreciate that. Um, but I will just say that the, that type of work allows me to do the field research. It allows me to understand what's happening in the soil and talk about it in a meaningful way. So while it's not as exciting, it's certainly important um, for sure. Now, wait a minute. I, I love boring. Okay. That, that oh. I, I, I really do. Now you mean to tell me that uh, the nitrogen and I applied to the field that uh, there's more than just that. I, I thought I had to buy everything I needed. Holy moly, you, you gotta be kidding. There's 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 more than one source of nitrogen in a field. This right. this might be fun. Walk us through all those different pools in this complex interaction. And in fact, there's a lot of similarities to the complexity of carbon in the soil and why we're having such problems with measuring carbon in the soil, because those two go hand in hand. So talk to us about that diversity and that all the, you know, the, the different pools, the cycling times and what causes the change in the, in the cycling times and such. Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. That's a question that, um, so part of my job at NDSU is teaching as well. So I teach under the soils, um, as part of my appointment. And I think I spend maybe a whole week on the question that you just asked me. So huge topic. But just talk fast. Just, That's all you got to do. Talk really fast. Really fast? Okay. Time me. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> my, my students love when I do that too, when I talk fast. Um, no. Uh, so the main, the main part or kind of the heart of the nitrogen cycle. Well, first I should back up. Mother nature has been growing plants for a long time. <laughs> Right. Um, we are not responsible for growing right. crops. Right. Hold it. On the eighth day, the fertilizer dealer wasn't uh, wasn't spoken to existence. No, no. Oh, it didn't oh OK. OK. <laughs> not even after God rested. Yeah. No, it didn't happen. 
Um, so yeah, we're mother nature is good at growing crops. There is a natural supply of nitrogen in the soil. It's just, it's there. Um, and it gets there a couple different ways. One of them certainly is by fertilizer. Um, but other than that, there's things like, um, organic inputs. So we have crops or not crops, but native plants that are growing and dying, replenishing organic matter in the soil. We can have, um, asymbiotic into fixation. These are microbes in the soil that are taking atmospheric nitrogen in the air um, and fixing it into their, um, their biomass. You can also have nitrogen come in through lightning, right? Lightning is a huge source of energy um, that can also be used to take that atmospheric nitrogen and fix it into the soil. Um, so lots of different ways it can be uh, input into the soil. And at the heart of it are what we call heterotrophic microorganisms in the soil that perform um, what we call mineralization and mobilization turnover. So what that turnover is, is these organisms, just like the plants, need carbon and nitrogen. Um, now, unlike the plants, they're not getting their carbon from CO2, they're getting their carbon from the carbon that's in the soil that's part of organic matter, okay? And they're taking that in to build enzymes and to use for energy. So whenever we apply nitrogen, we are fertilizing our crops, but we are also fertilizing the microorganisms. And that is really at the crux of why nitrogen management is so difficult because we have to take into account the fact that that nitrogen is not just being used by the plants, it's also being used by microorganisms in the soil. And they are a lot better at scavenging and taking up that nitrogen most of the time than the crop is. And that is why we don't always see, um, well, I will say why we never see 100% uptake into the crop unless you're growing on like a sand or in a greenhouse, right? Hydroponic, yes. Hydroponics, right. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. So uh, a long, long time ago, a good microbiologist friend of mine, uh, and explained this to me, uh, said that uh, real simple concept, microbes eat first. And yes. always have to keep that in mind because they're a lot better at it. They they move, they're mobile, they're billions and uh, billions and billions count wise. So uh, yeah, it's a matter of making sure when we are applying uh, fertilizer amendments that first off, uh, only apply what we need, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, we have a horrific uh, uh, appetite to over-apply. And I call that being, um, if a little bit's good, right? More is better. So <laughs> if you're putting uh, more on, that makes you a moron. So we, we don't oh. really want to, we don't want farmers to be morons. Uh, we want them to be judicious in what they do. Um but that comes into the whole, um, what you're talking about with the different pools and the microbes is the timing of the application, the placement of the application, uh, the form of the application all has effects on these uh, different pools and, and how they relate with each other. Mm -hmm. um, so the asymbiotic, there's a lot of work going on there, right? For uh, additives to the soil that uh, have these free living, non-associating microbes that fix nitrogen from the atmosphere. So there's quite a bit of that going on, and a lot of it's been commercialized. There's also some things going on with the the lightning approach too, isn't there? Um, 
you know, and, and trying to develop that. There's some companies out of Europe using electricity to try to pull atmospheric nitrogen to make that available. So all of these uh, processes are, are getting more and more attention these days, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, how do we, how do we under, what, what would you say now that you know what you know, what percent of this do we understand these associations? Is it one of these things that the more we know, the more we know that we don't know? Is that a fair way to say? Yes, yes. That's biology in a sentence, right? Uh, so complex. Um, but I think there's um, there's definitely benefit in knowing what you don't know. So you know how to move forward. Um, and I think you were mentioning these products that can be added. And yeah, there's lots of um, buzz around this right now. I think it's important to... Um, think about what is currently in the soil as well. Um, not just what can we add, but what what is currently going on in our soils. And there's definitely some really awesome researchers that are working on those questions. Um, we have one here at NDSU, his name is Barney Geddes, and he's working on that, those kinds of questions. Um, and I think that deserves attention as well, right? Um, because if we just are adding things, you know, it's just interesting to think about interactions and understanding, you know, how much of it is coming from what we already have versus what we're adding, those kinds of things. I agree. And it's, it's important to optimize what we already have versus be a moron, right? So <laughs> I get a kick out of one of the popular marketing approaches of one of the uh, asymbiotic uh, providers is, oh, well, we guarantee that it'll be just as good. Do you reduce 40 units of applied nitrogen and put our material out there and you'll, Yields will be the same. It's our guarantee. Well, the reality is, is we're probably over fertilizing by 40 units anyway, <laughs> you know, or, or we have a soil system that can do that for us. So, uh, yeah, it's a uh, good to look at those approaches. So what do you think are some of the promising approaches that you're seeing in, in this whole field of nitrogen fertility that farmers can be doing to reduce, uh, their inputs, whether it is synthetic, uh, nitrogen or, uh, other additives, uh, that, you know, cost money for a farmer to do? Mm-hmm. Well, um, the quickest way to increase your efficiency is to um, reduce your denominator. And what I mean by that is if you think about what efficiency is, it is the amount that you're getting in the crop divided by the amount you're applying, right? That's efficiency. And so if you are reducing your denominator or the amount you're applying, you're going to increase efficiency. Now, Am I saying that everyone across the board should decrease the amount of fertilizer you're using? No, right? This is going to be on, dependent on whether you are over-fertilizing or not. If you are not over-fertilizing, I would not recommend decreasing the amount of fertilizer you're applying. Um, but if you are over-fertilizing, first, you need to know that you're doing that. Um, and then second, you can easily increase your efficiency by, again, reducing your denominator. Um, this is something we saw that was kind of reflected in all of our papers that we did. There were four trials we looked at and we saw that one of the biggest factors that were that was um, determining efficiency was fertility level. So we had a site, it was a, a what we call the Birkbeck site, which is a alfasol, which is a forest soil. It's typically poorer than something like a malasol, like a drummer um, or an ipeba. And we saw that at that site, the efficiency was highest, um, which makes sense. If we have a low amount of native 
fertile or, or native nitrogen and we apply fertilizer, that fertilizer is gonna be used more because there's less of a dependence on it, um, or sorry, more of a dependence on it. Mm -hmm. Very good. So that's a good way to approach it. Nitrogen use efficiency is, is yield divided by pounds applied. So less pounds applied without sacrificing the yield makes our efficiency better. So uh, we definitely, definitely want to go there. So let's, let's dive into this study that caught my attention. I, this is so much fun. I apologize to everybody listening. I, I geek out on this stuff. So um, uh, talk to us a little bit about what, what you did. Uh, the methods in there are, are pretty, pretty interesting. Um, talk to us about that study. And then also um, maybe some of the things that just surprised you. Well, we'll save that for a little bit, but talk about the methods of the study, how you did it. And like you said, the Officeol versus the Molisol uh, in the, in the protocol. Yeah. So um, we, so we had, we had four different trials. Was there one in particular that you were oh. interested in or should I cover all of them? Well, you can cover all of them. The one that I was reading about was uh, the different placement types. Um, ah, with the conceal. But, but yeah, let's cover all of them because they're they're all important. And Yeah, they're all important and they're all fairly similar in how they're set up and kind of the questions they're asking. So yeah, it's super easy to talk about all of them together. Um, so before I talk about the specific trials, I want to talk about N15 um, because that is the tool that we used to ask all these questions and some of us aren't aware of what N15 is and it's a really I think it's a really cool tool I'm a little biased but I think it's cool <laughs> um so typically when we measure efficiency in the field we use something called the difference method and with the difference method we have two areas of the field we're applying nitrogen here not applying it here looking at the difference in yield and calling that the uptake from the fertilizer so pretty easy concept. There's a lot of issues with doing it that way. Um, you're making a lot of assumptions. You're assuming that applying nitrogen does not change the microbial cycling of nitrogen, which, you know, it does. <laughs> it definitely does. Um, so there's a couple issues there. Um, it's cheap to do the difference method. Really, the only cost is the amount of, um, you know, yield loss you have in your your zero area. Um, so it, it's done a lot, and it certainly has its place. However, there's a uh, a better approach, which is to use N15. So N15 is a heavy, stable isotope. Um, it's safe, so it it isn't actually radioactive. It's it's safe. Um, it makes up about 0.3. 663% of what we're breathing right now in all the nitrogen. So what we can do is we can bump that level up. So increase the amount of the isotope, and then we can trace where certain fertilizer applications go. So when we apply the enriched fertilizer, we can trace how much of it gets into the crop. And we can also trace where it goes in the in the soil system as well. So it's really, really powerful. Basically, we can say exactly where that fertilizer application is going. The only kind of caveat to that is it gets difficult to trace it once it leaves the system because it gets diluted out. Um, what I mean by that is it would be impossible or very difficult to trace that past when it's leached away from the system or if it's volatilized in the air. So typically with N15 studies, 
you can measure it in the plant, in the soil, and then if it's gone from the system, you simply say it's gone, right? Um, which from a producer standpoint, gone is gone, right? <laughs> if it didn't get into the crop, if it's not in the soil, then it's not gonna benefit them anymore. And it's also going to be a pollutant at that point as well, right? Because it's lost the system. So that's kind of the um, push behind my research program is trying to find practices that increase efficiency because it's a win-win situation. You have the most of a purchased resource getting into the crop and that's good for the producer, right? You're getting the most out of what you're buying, but it's also good for the environment because we're leaving the least amount of it in the soil where it can be lost and become a pollutant. The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. I think that's a real key point that you said there. Uh, it's not just gone. You didn't just lose it. It wasn't just a, a financial loss. Okay. Um, you know, I like to say there's four fates to nitrogen, right? That, um, that isn't utilized by the crop. And, and one is atmosphere goes to the atmosphere is nitrous oxide, a greenhouse gas, you know, 283 times or so more potent than carbon dioxide. It, it, it runs off into our lakes and streams and creates dead zones, uh, you know, Lake Erie, um, you know, the Chesapeake, the Gulf of, uh, Gulf of Mexico, Raccoon River, all these problems, right? Third thing is goes to our groundwater. We get to drink it, you know, blue baby syndrome, calf abortions, all those kind of things. That's not good. Or the fourth thing I don't think a lot of people think about is it burns carbon out of our soil because all these extra uh, microbes get excited and that cycle increases and they, they burn carbon as their fuel source. So this precious carbon we're trying to build over time uh, with excess nitrogen applications can, can be a problem. So I love that you say it's uh, the P word and, and we need to not be offended by that farmers. We need to realize that it's not just gone. It's not just a financial loss. We're polluting something somewhere for someone else. So there comes a time when those people don't like that and they're going to tell us not to do that. So we, we need to be ready for that. Um, sorry, I had to get on my soapbox there, Kelsey. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so talk to us a little bit about how, um, was it surprising? I think this is one of the things that came out of the papers was how little of the applied nitrogen is actually used by the crop. This is like <clears throat> mind blowing, right? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely an important um, finding from the studies was simply the magnitude of the numbers. So in all the studies, we were kind of doing these treatment comparisons. Um, we looked at fall applied anhydrous ammonia with and without nitropyrin uh, or inserve. Um, we looked at cydrus applications, the, the pre-plant applications. We also did a, a trial with looking at different forms. But from all those, yeah, the magnitude of the numbers is what... Um, was was interesting and you know you can the great thing about percentages is you can you can look at the reverse of it right so if we're only getting 30% of our nitrogen in the crop then that means there's 70% that's being left in the soil um and i think those numbers are good to be aware of you are not getting 
100, 90, 80, 70% of your um, nitrogen into your crop. It's not happening. Um, and that's important for producers to know. And other follow-up research or concurrent research that uh, you and or Dr. Mulvaney has done is clearly states nitrogen cannot, applied nitrogen as fertilizer cannot be reliably stored for a subsequent crop year too. So um, is that correct? Am I, am I remembering um, that right? I'm, I'm going back in the, the file cabinets here, but. So Mulvaney has had a very extensive career. So he yes. may have worked on that topic. <laughs> um, I, I am pretty familiar with a lot of his work, but okay. I'm not um, all of it by any means. We definitely did not ask that question okay. in our papers. I will say though, um, for the anhydrous paper, we did take soil samples and we are hoping to um, kind of look at that question. So we took soil samples at harvest um, and I spent a lot of time fractionating it into those different pools we talked about. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to kind of speak about that and say, you know, how much of it is left over. Um, there have been some researchers that have looked at that type of question. Um, not a lot. Uh, N15, something I didn't mention, is very expensive. It's incredibly expensive. Um, uh, a number that I calculated a couple of years ago, I think for, for 200 pounds of N for one acre, it costs about $172,000 for one acre. So this research is limited um, because of that. But I will say that I have a couple of projects in the works that are also kind of getting at that question. Because another thing to keep in mind too, is that retention would probably be affected by um, different management practices as well. And so very complex question, something that I'm hoping to get into. The research that we currently have published doesn't get at that right now. What is your, um, what do you suspect? Uh, and I realize you haven't, haven't completed it yet or, or dove into it, but what do you suspect some of those different management practices are that allow nitrogen to, um, up, you know, persist longer in the soil or be, be used by subsequent crops or such? Mm -hmm. um, well, and again, this is this is conjecture at this point. Conjecture. No research yes. I've done um, has, has looked at this. Um, but you would think that if we have good um, microbial cycling, healthy soils that are able to um, cycle the nutrients, that that would certainly help with retention, right? So immobilization, right? If we have immobilized nitrogen, that would be a way in which it would stay longer in the soil, um, one would think. So yeah, certainly a lot of work that needs to be done in that area. And I think that's important, especially as we are talking more and more about soil health, right? How are those topics impacting um, fertilizer retention? Is it positive? Is it negative? Those are important questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I had a few, few questions here and uh, I thought it was interesting. One of the, out of the conclusions of um, the, the one study I referred to with the different uh, placement positions of, of early nitrogen. So it's ranging from uh, 5% to 34% in the grain and seven to 46% of the applied nitrogen in the total growth above ground, uh, excuse me, above ground biomass. Um, just was wondering why is there more of that nitrogen in the biomass versus the grain. Is that showing that that application was used by the biomass, but later bioavailable nitrogen uh, supplied grain fill? Yeah, so something that's interesting about those pre-plant applications, first of all, um, with a lot of the other 
projects that we did, it, we were looking at labeling all of the nitrogen. Whereas with that project, we labeled the first 80 pounds that went on and we did not label the 120 pounds. And the reason for that is because we weren't really interested in what was happening with that side dress application. We were interested in what was happening with that 80 pound um, starter application or pre-plant application. And so that's something to keep in mind that we're talking, again, you decrease the denominator, right? If it's 80 pounds, you're gonna get presumably higher efficiency. Um, so the reason why we believed we saw that was simply because we were looking at that pre-plant application. And so that um, fertilizer was taken up earlier in the growing season. And so it was more likely to stay in the biomass than to be remobilized into the grain. Now we can't see that for, for certain because we did not take um, periodic sampling of the crops. We just looked at harvest, but that's the reason why we thought that happened. The other thing would be interesting to find out too, is if the plant could have been sampled from below ear and above ear to see mm. what the isotope difference would be uh, to know if if that 20% that was in the grain, was it remobilized from tissue or was it uh, came from soil later, you know? Mm. Um, but uh, any ideas on that or, or um, where that, is that still being delivered from the soil or do you think that was remobilized? Or no way. It, it's yeah. It certainly could have been remobilized. Again, that's not something we really looked at for the study. Sure. That kind of work is definitely done. Typically, that work is done in the greenhouse, just because it's easier to manage and with um, those kinds of questions. And the but yeah, for, for the you know, sorry, what'd you say? I'm sorry. The hundred seventy-two thousand dollars an acre has a reason to do it in the labs too. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's every researcher has that right where they want to add more treatments and more measurements, and at some point you have to cut it. And yeah, there was a couple of things. I think um, something else I really wish we could have included is we did the trial looking at ammoniacal versus nitrate sources. I would have loved to include urease in that project, and it just um, you know, we couldn't add another, uh, treatment. So. Well, the good part is you're young, you're, you're an associate professor now, so you've got lots of opportunities to do this, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. No shortage of ideas. That's for sure. <laughs> need to work on. Just a shortage of funding there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the, you gotta have money to do research, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just, um, I thought, what did you find interesting in those different placement methods? Because here at our company, uh, we recommend nitrogen and, and the first nitrogen, uh, into the field, we recommend with the planner and we've gone through several iterations mechanically to make that happen. So, you know, back in the old days, it was, uh, we had, uh, you know, single double disc openers on the front of the planner. Then they did the totally tubular dropping it off the rear, which you simulated. Then it went to conceal and, you know, there's, there's other options out there from other companies that, you know, Yetter and 360, they put it into the soil index to the seed row. Um, so, so we're all about this and I, and this is why it, it got my attention. Um, did you find the the differences between those to, to be kind of interesting versus, you know, basically a, a spray of the field, um, walk us through those differences that you saw there. Yeah. So for the project, yeah, we were looking at, um, placement at planting and we think about what increases efficiency, right? Um, putting the nitrogen down when the crop needs it, right? And that is certainly a time when it needs it. So it makes sense that this type of application would, would increase efficiency. So for the paper, 
we had um, four different kind of treatments we were looking at. And again, we were just looking at the efficiency of that, that first application. Um, we had conceal with one band versus two bands. And then we wanted to have a kind of um, comparison, a common comparison. And so we used a, a drag chain treatment, which was basically um, a dribble um, followed by a, a, a simulated drag chain. Um, and then we also had a broadcast treatment. And something that was incredibly clear from the study and clear from others' research as well, this is not um, new information, is um, that banding the application is more efficient than broadcasting it. Um, you're putting it where the crop needs it. You're providing a higher concentration of nitrogen, so less of it is being immobilized. Um, so there's more, more available for the crop. That was like the big finding from, from the paper. Very, very clear. Um, and then the other finding was that there wasn't really a difference between the single and dual band. I do have to make a little bit of a caveat that we were just looking at nitrogen efficiency. You know, typically these uh, applications aren't just nitrogen, right? So that's an important consideration. Um, you know, was phosphorus efficiency better versus one versus two? That's not something that we asked or answered with the paper. So um, we were just looking at nitrogen efficiency. And your your broadcast would be similar to uh, a common practice in the Midwest of a of a weed and feed where they put the nitrogen with the herbicide. That's that's kind of what you were compa comparing to. I realize you probably didn't have the herbicide with it, but that was the the thinking behind that yeah. application. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that uh, a big difference there that you said. Uh, and I um, is that do you, is that what's happening to that nitrogen that we're putting out in that broadcast scenario then? Do we know? Is it just not used by the plant and it's tied up in the biomass, or is it greatly uh, increased uh, uh, subject to loss? So we can certainly say from the results, because we did measure at harvest, that that broadcast application wasn't ever subsequently taken up by the crop in that growing season. So it wasn't a situation where it was immobilized and then maybe taken up later in the growing season. Um, because we would have still seen the uptake at harvest. Um, that being said, we didn't take soil samples at harvest for this project. And so we don't know if that N15 persisted past the growing season, but we can say that it did not, um, you know, remobilize and then it wasn't taken back up later in, in the growing season, if that makes sense. Of course, I had it up in front of me before, but now I don't. Do you remember the, if the 80 units of um, broadcast versus 80 units of banded, what the difference was there in the total uptake wasn't it almost half of half as much on the broadcast was found its way into the plant. Um, I'm not sure what those numbers are. As we're both looking at our phones right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. It was, let's see, total above ground biomass range from 11 to 46% when UAM was banded and then from seven to 34% when it was broadcast. Okay. Okay. So it was um, anywhere from about two thirds as efficient. Yeah. Roughly, yeah. Three, roughly. Three quarters, yep. two thirds. And, but there, that's a wide range of variability you had. It is. And it has to do back to what we were saying at the beginning um, about site variability. Mm -hmm. um, so comparing, you know, abandoned application on a poor soil 
versus a banded application on a rich soil, it's going to look different. It's going to look very different. Um, yeah. And then, so you're, you're definitely getting it out of the poorer, poorer situations. You definitely see that response because you're, um, one, you're more feeding the soil when you're more feeding the plant in simple terms. Um, tell me about the tillage, uh, regime in these different sites. Was it similar or was there some variation in the tillage? So tillage was held constant across the sites. So that, that was not different between the sites. Um, and it also, I don't believe it was different between the years either. That was consistent between the years. Um, so tillage wasn't something we we looked at. Um, I will tell you now, it's something that I am currently trying to work on up here because it's so important when we're talking about nitrogen efficiency. Um, and it's, it's a big topic. Um, and yeah, how we manage nitrogen applications with the different tillage regimes is really important. Um, I have a, a colleague up here in GSU who's done a lot of work on the topic. And um, he also has, has showed me the importance of length of duration with tillage. Um, you know, two years of a tillage regime versus 10 years of a tillage regime is totally different. Um, and those are things that I'm hoping to get into. Um, it's difficult to find sites that have long-term tillage regimes in place, but they're certainly around. That is interesting. So you get a lot of release on that first first till event versus continuous till. You get more of a uh, probably a stabilizer, plateaued, predictable uh, microbial release out of it. Because we're essentially we're changing microbial communities through tillage. Mm -hmm. And carbon pools as well, um, which, yeah, yep. Hmm. Cool. Because, yeah, up in North, North Dakota, the outside of the, where you're at in the Red River Valley, you know, no-till is a way of life. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, they don't even know what that word is around champagne. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I would suspect, uh, and would you suspect the same, that the results of your study would have been even more drastic uh, between the broadcast and the banded in a long-term no-till situation, and especially if it was continuous corn, and maybe you might speak to that. You did you see a difference between corn on corn versus corn on after beans on the uh, utilization efficiency? Did you get more tie up in the biomass uh, associated with second year corn? On the second year corn, yeah. Um, I'm not recalling the rotation differences. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I'd have to look back at that, but that that certainly would make sense, right? If you would have more carbon in the system, and I think. Um, you know, if, if that were the case, it would also be interesting to look at, at tillage as well. Right. Because we, we really see an advantage in yield wise when you put nitrogen on the planter um, mm -hmm. in no-till. So mm -hmm. it, it's almost, it's really a requirement. Uh, so um, it's great to see that understanding, you know, these are agronomic practices we've known for a while. It's great to see the, the science uh, documenting why that's happening. So yeah, yeah, definitely. I really, really appreciate that. Um, so the simulated drag chain uh, that caught my attention. How, how did you do this? And I'm and I because I one of the reasons I went away from the totally tubulars with the drag chain off the rear to conceal was is when you ride the planter and you see those things just a bouncing and flopping around and it's kind of like blah 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 blah. You know, <laughs> sorry for the sound effects here. Uh, you know, squirting nitrogen everywhere and. And then the drag chain kind of spreading it out a little bit. Uh, I just, I, you know, when everything's so precision, it just, um, 
that drove me nuts. How did you simulate the drag chain uh, to, to be similar to that? So as we discussed before, M15 is expensive. And so what that means is typically we're working with small plots. Um, and so uh, I would just, if, if anyone out there is looking at M15 research, definitely look at how they simulated the applications. Um, the anhydrous project, that was very challenging because we were trying to do um, applications with a toolbar of anhydrous on a seven and a half foot long plot. Everyone can understand how difficult it is to get good accuracy and precision with that type of application. That is why we had a whole separate paper that was um, published to talk about how we were able to accomplish that application. That's totally Tim Smith's doing. He um, designed the toolbar and was able to get it so that we could um, trust that we were applying our 200 pound rate. Um, we did go in and do, um, I'm gonna call it soil sampling. We had a Giddings probe that had like a plate sampler on it. I don't know if that makes sense. It was like a slice. So we could take a slice of soil to make sure that we were um, applying what we thought we were applying in that band. So same way with all the other applications, you had to be a little bit um, MacGyver about all of our application uh, simulations. Because it was important to us that we were, you know, applying it how a producer would apply it. So for the drag chain, um, we had a undergraduate student. His name was Lucas Goldschmidt. So hi, Lucas. Um, he uh, went back with a, a hoe and lightly covered the uh, band with with uh, soil that was next to the next to the band. So um, how well does that simulate your bumping around with the drag chain? Yeah, that, that could potentially be an area where maybe we had better incorporation than what you might see with a with a drag chain. Um, yeah, so something to keep in mind. But the, the takeaway farmers is between conceal, which is expensive, okay, and the drag chain off the back and covering it with the, uh, you know, covering it with the drag chain, not much of a difference, you know, in your research. So, you know, if, if the thousand dollars a row uh, for conceal is out of your your budget and you want to go off the back, you know, don't let best uh, be the um, what's the saying? Don't let best get in the way of the good. So uh, definitely uh, consider that. So, you know, you're you're getting started in your career. You've seen a lot of fascinating things, and I can just in our short period of time that we've been together, I can think of you know, dozens of research tracks that you can take. And now with the new emphasis on carbon intensity, right, production, uh, greenhouse gas, you know, most everybody's focused on carbon, but boy, every time you can eliminate nitrous oxide, you've done 283 times more than someone that's eliminating carbon dioxide, right? So um, what what do you see as the realm of possibilities for your your future uh, research and and career here? This is this has got to be amazing. Yeah, so I definitely want to continue the work that I've been doing, looking at efficiency. I think that's always going to be something that I want to look at. Um, but up here in North Dakota, things are a little bit different. Um, they have a lot different cropping rotations, um, many, many more crops uh, grown up here extensively than, than down in Illinois. There's also a lot of um, soil fertility issues that aren't present um, down in Illinois that are present up here, a lot more salinity issues. We're starting to have some pretty severe acidification issues in the western part of the state. 
Um, and then there's the whole shorter growing season, right? So that complicates things as well. Um, and so, you know, I'm going to be still looking at efficiency, but there's some other things that I'm hoping to work on as well. Um, I also would like to kind of get into the realm of uh, soil testing and kind of looking at improving nitrogen recommendations for the state as well. Um, Dave Franzen has done a lot of work up here and has done a great job. Um, and I would like to continue contributing to that as well. So, so farmers right now in this podcast release, they're going to be going back and forth in the combine or they're going to be, uh, you know, looking at uh, uh, our California farmers, uh, almond harvest and tomato harvest and those kind of things. And what uh, what should they be count to contemplating here as they're they're trying to hit the grain cart or, you know, watch the loads go from the field? Um, what are some takeaways you think that farmers really need to consider for next year and and for the future as they're building their, their cropping systems and their fertility programs? Yeah, I think just thinking about efficiency is important. And part of that is maybe not so much even um, trying to figure out what your efficiency is, but just understanding what you're doing on your farm that may be contributing or hindering you um, from getting the most out of your, your resource that you're purchasing, your fertilizer applications. Um, and just be aware that there are ways that you can increase your efficiency. And that was demonstrated by um, the, the projects we've done. We saw that, again, as simple as don't broadcast, but band your starter applications. Things like in-season applications, those can increase efficiency. I know sometimes it's difficult to get out in the field at those times, but you can increase efficiency. And then things like anhydrous ammonia, you don't get super high efficiency with those. So if possible, um, you know, think about not putting it out there six months before the crop is there, those kinds of things. Um, I, you know, I think it's it's easy to kind of want to find a kind of silver bullet to efficiency and to find this amazing, easy pill type of um, solution. Um, but in, to put it plainly, it's going to happen in small increments as we look at changing our management practices and how we're putting on the nitrogen. It's not going to be a situation more than likely where we find this one product that we're going to put out there and it's going to solve everything. Um, and so just, you know, look at it practice by practice. Um, if you're curious about something, throw some stuff out there for an acre or two and just see what happens. That's a great thing. That's what I was going to recommend to everyone when you're considering next year. Try, you know, uh, half a field or, or a quarter of a field. Get get some acres to it so you can see what's going on. Mm -hmm. Reduce your rate of what you're currently doing. Uh, look at partner with a neighbor uh, that might have a nitrogen on the planter if you don't. And, and just say, hey, um, help me out. Help me learn. Get Check the pride at the door and, and go learn because we, we all need to learn. Uh, or if you are putting some nitrogen on at the planter, uh, a lot, a very common application is 10 gallons. And I would say, you know, really, um, if you're putting on fall and you have 10 gallons on the planter, why don't you look at putting 20 gallons on the planter, maybe nothing in the fall and side dress the rest, you know, look at all these options that we have. And just because you side dress doesn't mean you have to side dress the whole farm and you're worried about getting the whole farm side dressed, you know try a little bit, right? Kelsey, just, just go to a little more on the planter and put, put the rest on side dress and, and put on two thirds as much as what you would have done. You don't see what it is. And then if you like it, guess what? They have these monster machines now that cover 24 rows at 10 mile an hour to side dress. 
if all of a sudden you're getting, you know, 10 to 12 more bushel and, and you're buying 50 units less nitrogen, you know, that, that machine gets pretty cheap real quick. So, um, it, you wouldn't be afraid to recommend to people just, just try something, right. Try anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, there's power in knowing something works for your land. Right. And you can, you know, listen to different ideas and you can read about different things, but until you actually try it for yourself and improve it to yourself, that it does work and that it's going to be something that's um, beneficial to you, whether it's increasing yield or decreasing input costs, then you're not going to know. Um, so yeah, you gotta, you gotta try. Exactly. And I think it's, it's too easy to do what we've always done. And we, we have to be willing to um, get better over time. Right. Cause just think about it, folks. Uh, your, your ancestors did because if they didn't get better over time, you wouldn't be in a tractor. You'd still be on horses. So um, we, you know, we have to be looking at it all the time. Um, any other things I should have asked about in our time together here, Kelsey, or, or things you'd like to share about, um, uh, you know, what you see going on in at, not only at North Dakota, but uh, in the industry itself? Um, no, it seems like we covered quite a lot of ground. And as long as I'm talking about efficiency, I'm happy. Um, that's definitely something that I think is worth everyone's time and consideration with nitrogen management, for sure. Because the, the efficiency is not only a score for your checkbook, it's also a score for how uh, good you were to the environment, right? Because uh, the better your efficiency, the less leakage you've got built into your farming system. Is that is that a way to think of it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, a good way to think of it, you know, so uh, a really very flamboyant display of nitrogen pollution is in the Gulf of Mexico, right? We have this big hypoxic zone um, with all these nutrients that have come down from the Mississippi and created this growth. Um, the algal growth depletes the ox or the water of oxygen and destroys ecosystems. So it's a really easy thing to kind of point to and say, you know, this is this is where your fertilizer is going, right? So if you're not fertilizing your, your corn crop or whatever crop you're applying nitrogen to, you're fertilizing this big body of water in the Gulf of Mexico um, and destroying ecosystems. And I think, you know, the, the water pollution is also a, a pretty hot topic, at least it has been for the past five years or so. Um, Des Moines Waterworks, right? That was a big deal when that happened. Um, and certainly that's kind of uh, an example of where pollution did come back um, to the farmer and there was accountability that was that was um, that, that had to be done for that so yeah it's it's a benefit to the taxpayer but it's a benefit to the producer as well to increase efficiency for sure well stay in touch and thank you for all the the work that you're doing to, to help us understand the importance of efficiency and how that can be attained and and various practices uh, happy to connect you with any of our producers that we have, uh, you know, that are working with us and, and explore ways and, and any way we can work together would, would be great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, Kelsey, take care. Bye. I'd like to take a moment and follow up on what Dr. Kelsey Grisheim was talking about here. It, pretty interesting things and in what we need to look at in nitrogen use efficiency. So here's your, here's your task list of things to consider. And I hope you will, because if we're not utilizing the nitrogen for our soil in a plant, it is pollution for somebody else. And you should really care about that. You know, uh, Seth Watkins was on our podcast. Several others have been on our podcast. And if you're listening, you want to do a better job. So here's some hints on how you can. So first off, going to talk to the Corn Belt folks. Um, if you're doing fall ammonia, 
really need to aggressively look at a way to get out of that system. Uh, first off, you can start by putting 25% less on in the fall just to see what it does. After that, I would really consider setting up your planner because you can get nitrogen on the planner. That is huge on efficiency, huge on the ability to be able to integrate cover crops, go to no-till and uh, improve yield and reduce nitrogen. That is uh, a step while it's awkward, requires tendering and those kind of things. I do like to say, yes, it, it slows you down in the spring. And guess what? Yes, it slows you down in the fall. I'll let you figure that one out. So get the 10 gallons on the planter. Let's say you're already there. Okay, next step. What's the next right step? If you're at 10 gallons on the planter, putting on about 30 units of nitrogen, get that planter up to 80 pounds. That's a sweet spot. Get to 80 pounds of nitrogen on at the planter. Make sure we got sulfur with that, ammonium thiosulfate, pot possibly potassium thiosulfate. I use that, for example, on our farm, along with Fast Track with the planter. Uh, but get to that point, and that seems to be about an optimum. Then get the side dress, and you want to have side dress probably at the Y drop or colder. Get that out there about V5, V7 uh, to apply the balance, or ideally no more than 80 units and do another application if you want to get really fancy. But that's kind of the order. Get, get, get away from it in the fall. Put some on the planter. If you're doing some on the planter, do more on the planter. And then um, balance a side dress. Now, for irrigation folks, uh, this be our people that are in our western area, pivot irrigation or way out west on drip line and such in California. Um, we need to be thinking about irrigation from a part per million standpoint instead of from a pounds per acre standpoint. We need to make sure that we're uh, front loading the system to get the biology and the system awaken and, and functioning, but then we need to spoon feed it after that. So you'll notice on all our recommendations when we're working with customers, that's how we design the system. And a lot of times, especially in supplemental irrigation, so let's say Colorado, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, Texas, Oklahoma on pivots, if we have a good year and we get a lot of rain, we kind of can get behind on our nitrogen applications. So we have to catch up a little bit on that first pivot but we really want to think of nitrogen applied as a part per million of total water received, whether it's through the irrigation pipe or from mother nature. And uh, so having systems set up to where we have injection on every pivot that can inject in a microdose all the time, that's where you're going to get superior results and, and match the uptake curve. Uh, you got to, you got to front load the uptake curve by about 21 to 28 days uh, so that uh, it can be in the soil and uh, available for the plant for its peak use. A couple other notes on nitrogen as you go to cover crops, whether they are high leguminous cover crops or high carbon cover crops, they typically require more nitrogen. Now, obviously, the high carbon cover crops will require additional nitrogen up front, but this is not more total nitrogen for the whole season. It's simply you have to shift you have to front load the nitrogen more because as we were talking on the podcast, microbes eat first and we want to make sure that you have the nitrogen there to feed the microbes so that the nitrogen is available for your plant later on. So real, real key points there as you're uh, addressing these things. The other thing is, is we want to be careful. Uh, excess nitrogen application is also associated with diseases. So bacterial diseases in almonds, uh, tomatoes, diseases in corn, when we have too much nitrogen, especially nitrate nitrogen, that makes that plant more susceptible to disease. So we want to do everything possible to not slug feed. We want to feed as the plant needs it and in a balanced form that the plant needs. 
couple other things. You know, we don't promote our products a lot on this podcast, but our biological turbo is great at helping to accelerate that system. You know, she mentioned enzymes in there. That's what it's designed for, encouraging the soil microbial community uh, through enzymatic activity to release more nitrogen available for the plant. It, it works great. Typically, we find that that'll improve nitrogen release by about 40 to 50 units per acre, which means you can buy less. So we get better utilization. We, we lower that denominator, as Dr. Grisheim was saying. Um, there's other things you can do, too, uh, as far as just constantly looking for every opportunity. And I just hope as you're listening to this, you're thinking through your nitrogen plans for this next year. Think about every way that you can become more efficient because not only is it better for your pocketbook, it's better for everybody else that breathes, eats, and drinks. So I um, really appreciate that. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. And if there's any way we can help you and think a little bit differently about nitrogen, how to do it within your system, the equipment that's needed, how to make it happen, reach out to us. We'll connect you with one of our local professionals or we'll help you directly, whatever it takes. It's our mission to grow crops in a better way that's better for the soil and hopefully better for everybody. So thank you for listening today and we hope we can help you in, in some way here in the future. Take care. Thanks for listening. We hope today's conversation got you thinking about your nitrogen management plans and ways you can explore applications that are beneficial to the environment and your soils. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.